Hey everyone, welcome to a special podcast edition of History with Sai. I'm actually thrilled to start my first podcast series with you entitled The Epic of Ancient Assyria. The dictionary definition of epic is a long poem, typically one derived from an ancient oral tradition, narrating the deeds and adventures of heroic or legendary figures or the history of a nation. I like a lot of the words that appear in this definition. For example, ancient oral tradition. Like any podcast, this one will be more or less an oral presentation of information. Although if you're watching the video podcast version, there'll be some maps and other visuals to help enhance the content. And that last part of the definition, narrating the deeds and adventures of heroic or legendary figures or the history of a nation. That, my loyal listeners, is what I'm planning to do with this series on ancient Assyria. You see, many of us don't know much about this incredible and influential civilization. Others of us have this view that the Assyrians were a barbaric band of militants simply bent on world domination. Most don't know that they were amongst the most cultured and learned people of their time. There's a lot, actually, that people don't know about ancient Assyria and the Assyrians. My goal with this series is to change that. So, let's begin our journey into the history of ancient Assyria. Before we get into this epic journey, let's first clarify a few things. Assyria really starts with the establishment of a city called Asher. Asher is also the name of the city's patron god. So, there's Asher the city, and Asher the god. The Assyrians called their land Mat Asher, meaning land of Asher, as in the god Asher. In the beginning, that land of Asher was simply a small town with a temple dedicated to the god. However, as it grew in terms of territory, the land of Asher also expanded considerably outside of the confines of the city of Asher, which was the capital of the early Assyrian kingdom. Even when the capital moved to other sites such as Kalhu, Durshurukin, or Nineveh, the Assyrians still used the term land of Asher to describe their state. The Greeks, though, didn't use this term and instead called the land of Asher Assyria. And that is where we get the term from today. Most scholars divide up ancient Assyrian history into three main phases or periods that generally correspond with the establishment and decline of various kingdoms. These are the Old Assyrian period, from 2000 to 1763 BCE, the Middle Assyrian period, from 1365 to 1076 BCE, and the Neo-Assyrian period, from 911 to 610 BCE, when the Assyrian state was at its most powerful. So back to the city of Asher. Though an ancient place, it doesn't have as long of a history as, say, the old Sumerian cities to its south. All of these... Ur, Iridu, Uruk, Nippur, Lagash, Uma, and others had been around for thousands of years before Asher came into existence. Being along the northern part of the Tigris River, it was quite removed from all of the action that went on for centuries in southern Mesopotamia, a place we'll also refer to as Babylonia. The earliest history of Asher is obscure at best. According to H.W.F. Sags, whose classic work, the Might That Was Assyria is one of my favorite books. By 2800 BCE, 
The site that would become Ashur was already a religious center with the temple dedicated to the goddess Ishtar. Eventually, another temple, this one dedicated to a god named Ashur, from which the city would also take its name, was built. The city and the god were intertwined. Austrian Assyriologist Karen Radner writes, The god Ashur and the city of Ashur are inseparable, as the deity is the personification of the rocky crag called Kalat Sherkat in Arabic, that towers high above a bend of the river Tigris. Shaped like the prow of a ship, the roughly triangular crag rises 40 meters above the valley, providing shelter and opportunities for the people who settled there since at least the mid-third millennium BC. Now, I haven't been there, but I suppose that it must have been a pretty awe-inspiring sight back in the day, and so it's not hard to see why early peoples would have thought that a god lived there. However, the site's sacredness may not have been the initial reason as to why a settlement was initially built there. One look at the site upon which Asher came to rest, and it's easy to see that there were probably more earthly or practical considerations. One was that the site was on a hill, making it easier to defend from attack. In addition, due to having a Mediterranean climate, which brought the rain needed for growing wheat and barley, Asher was surrounded by fertile land for farming. This is in contrast to Babylonia, which had to rely on man-made canals in order to irrigate water to its fields. Trade also could have been another reason for the city's establishment. Asher would eventually be at the crossroads of the Anatolian, Mesopotamian, Elamite trade network. We'll get to that shortly. According to the Assyrian king list, Assyrian history goes back to a remote past, a time before they as a people lived a settled existence. The copies of the Assyrian king list that have been discovered are essentially just that, a list of Assyrian kings dating from what archaeologists believe is roughly 2500 BCE to the late 8th century BCE, although we know of many Assyrian kings who came after the last king to appear on the list. Keep in mind also that several Assyrian king lists have been found in various places, including Ashur, Durshurukin, and Nineveh. And while they're mostly consistent, there are discrepancies among them, and even lines that are missing or illegible. The first group of 17 kings are known as kings who lived in tents. Though we might use the word king, these individuals, if they actually existed, probably were nomads who lived during the time before the Assyrians adopted a settled life in and around Asher. Instead of king, a better, perhaps more accurate word would be tribal chieftain. Anyway, if Asher was established around 2800 BCE, as mentioned earlier, it implies that the original inhabitants of the city were probably not the same people that we today call the Assyrians. After these kings who lived in tents are kings the list refers to as those who were ancestors. Again, these kings can't be confirmed by any inscription or other evidence contemporary to their reigns, the dates of which aren't even written on the list and are currently unknown. It's only after these kings that we come to the first historical dynasty of Assyria, one that started with a king named Puzur Asher. We really don't know much about him other than his name. 
He may have been a former governor of Akkadian origin who, as the Neo-Sumerian Empire was breaking up, declared himself to be king of the city. The founding of his dynasty is estimated to have occurred around 2025 BCE. The activity of Ashur's rulers during this time and shortly afterward aren't documented very well. However, the evidence that we have about Ashur from the period, both from the city itself as well as evidence from outside of it, tell of a place going through a rapid economic transformation. Puzur Ashur's descendants, Ilushuma and Irishum I, formulated economic policies that were designed to attract traders to the city. Most of this information doesn't come from Ashur, but from the ruins of Anatolian cities to its west. Of these, the most important one seems to have been Kanesh, also known as Nisha or Nesha, today in central Anatolia near the Turkish city of Keseri. There have been well over 20,000 cuneiform documents that have been uncovered there detailing all sorts of commercial activity between Kanesh and Ashur. Many of these bear the seals of early Assyrian kings, such as Irisham I, who is believed to have reigned between the years 1974 to 1935 BCE. It was during the reign of Irisham I that the position and institution of the Limum, who was a high-ranking member of the city assembly in charge of financial and economic affairs, was created. Perhaps we should talk about the city assembly before we go any further. In short, it was a city legislative body made up of the wealthier and more influential members of Assyrian society. The assembly ruled in conjunction with the king, and in many ways served as a check on his power. Contrary to later Assyrian kings, especially those of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the king in early Assyrian society wasn't an all-powerful, absolute monarch. In fact, in theory, he wasn't a king at all. Assyrian religion dictated that the true king of Assyria, in this case the city of Ashur, was the god Ashur. The human ruler was not the king, but the god Ashur's representative, steward, or vice-regent. It was his job to work with the city assembly for the prosperity of the city and to negotiate trade deals with other parties, such as Babylonian traders, Elamite caravans, and the rulers of the Anatolian cities to the northwest. The commodities most in demand at the time were tin and copper. These were needed for creating bronze, which was important for making strong tools as well as weapons. The tin would generally come from mines in Central Asia, specifically the regions that we today identify with Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. They would then cross the Iranian plateau before arriving at Ashur. Tin wasn't the only item that came from the east. The hills of the much closer Zagros Mountains provided iron ore, timber, stone, and later on, horses. These goods, especially tin and textiles, were then transported to Anatolia where they were exchanged for silver and gold. Thus, Asher's most ancient history is closely linked to its role as an international trade hub. While this made it wealthy, it didn't necessarily make it a large city. In fact, Today we'd probably think of it more as a large town, since most Assyriologists doubt that Ashur contained more than eight to 10,000 people at any given time during its early history. Many of Ashur's citizens also lived abroad in merchant colonies of the Anatolian cities. 
There also doesn't seem to have been any sort of royal palace or military institutions from that period. Nor is there any indication that the king and city assembly of Asher controlled any of the territory outside of the city walls or the farmlands that were adjacent to it. When you think about it, it's pretty phenomenal how Asher found itself in such a position. In fact, Asher may have been a trading hub much earlier than many people currently believe. For example, we know that the Akkadian king, Naram-Sin, was active in the region all the way up to Nineveh sometime around the year 2275 BCE. Along with controlling parts of Elam, Naram-Sin also claims to have campaigned heavily in the mountains of southern Anatolia. The logical reason for this was to obtain raw materials and other resources from both areas, and so it would have made sense for towns and cities such as Asher to have existed to facilitate this purpose. However, the lack of concrete evidence from the time makes it quite difficult to conclusively prove this. With the city of Asher prospering from trade, so too did the god Asher. Erisham I indicates that he enacted a sort of ancient eminent domain policy when he declared in inscriptions, With the help of Asher, I cleared houses from the sheep gate to the people's gate. I reserved terrain for Asher. In this case, of course, I'm referring to the god Asher as the one who benefited. The people of Asher, who were forced to be cleared from the area, had to be relocated somewhere else. In general, old Assyrian society was divided up into two main groups, free citizens and slaves. Legally, men and women had the same rights. Punishments, such as fines, were identical for both genders, and both men and women could inherit, buy, or sell property and slaves, as well as initiate divorce. Commercial activities seem to have both increased and become more complex during the reign of King Sargon I. This individual, of course, is not to be confused with the famous Sargon of Akkad, although I'd bet a substantial sum of money that Sargon I of Assyria was probably named after him. It's during his reign that we see the first joint stock companies, called Narukum, being established. A document discovered at Kanesh from Sargon's reign describes how they worked. Basically, a group of investors would pool together a specified quantity of gold, or silver, and then entrust it to an experienced trader for a period of generally 10 to 12 years. The trader would then use the gold or silver to finance various commercial activities, and after the period, give it back along with a share of any profits that had been acquired from the endeavor. As trade expanded, so too did the amount of men, capital, trading stations, and merchant colonies that were involved with it. The smaller trading stations were called Wabartum, while the larger trading colonies were called Karum. There were at least 30 trading colonies, or Karum, that we know about. The largest and arguably most important of these was Kanesh. The trading stations and colonies, though, required a high degree of trust amongst all of the participants. Thus, Early Assyrian kings, such as Erisham I, had to sign treaties with their respective counterparts in the Anatolian cities in order to safeguard both their commercial interests as well as the lives of those Assyrians living within the merchant colonies. Some of these Assyrians were known as Tamkarum, 
who were essentially trade agents who worked the colony credit systems, settled accounts, and solved any problems that may have arisen. They generally worked out of an office in colonies such as Kanesh, and often acted as liaisons between the king of Ashur and the local Anatolian ruler. However, it's not just the Anatolian cities that were booming. Ashur itself, despite its relatively small size, was also becoming a much more cosmopolitan place. The French Assyriologist Cécile Michel writes, Because Ashur was a trading center at the junction of important roads, many foreign merchants visited the city. Elamites exchanged tin for gold there. Babylonians from southern Mesopotamia sold their textiles in Ashur. People from upper Mesopotamia probably traveled to Ashur as well. Both in the city and abroad, Assyrian merchants interacted with foreigners on a regular basis. They identified them by means of their ethnicity and the languages they spoke. Akkadian was the name given to the Babylonian population. The Amorites lived along the Euphrates River, west of the upper Jezira. And Subarians were the Hurrians who settled north of Ashur along the Tigris River. However, cities such as Kanesh were probably more ethnically and linguistically diverse than Ashur. These cities contained Hittites, Luvians, Hurrians, and traders from the city of Ebla in what is today northern Syria. Added to this were, of course, the Assyrian merchants. Life in the Anatolian cities was in many ways similar to that of our own. You had your merchants, bankers, bakers, tailors, carpenters, scribes, metalsmiths, and farmers who'd bring their harvest to sell in the local markets. Along with the open-air markets, called Mahirum, Assyrians could buy barley, raw wool, textiles, and even tin from special warehouses, and sometimes even from the city hall itself. In cities such as Kanesh, the Assyrian population generally lived in their own enclaves, though this doesn't mean that they were completely separated from the native inhabitants of the city. These native or local residents of Kanesh saw the Assyrians as a sort of wealthy foreign elite. In fact, some Anatolian families willingly married their daughters to Assyrian merchants living in Kanesh, as it was seen as a way to benefit them financially as well as raise their status within the local community. It was also common for these Assyrian merchants to have another wife back in Ashur. However, for the most part, marriages were monogamous, with some marriage contracts explicitly stating that the groom was forbidden from taking another wife. Family was the most important and central focus of Assyrian life. However, relations became complicated when many of Ashur's men went away to the merchant colonies for long periods of time. In such cases, their wives would be left behind in Ashur to take care of any small children or the family's local business interests. Fathers had legal authority over their children. Usually, the eldest sons followed their fathers abroad, while those below their teenage years stayed in Ashur with the mother. Generally, young boys had some sort of tutor to teach them how to read and write. Young daughters also stayed with the mother and helped them with daily tasks, such as cooking and weaving. The weaving wasn't done just for household use, but also for export to Anatolia. This was one way in which the women, whether old, middle-aged, or young, could help their families financially. Textiles were in heavy demand. There's one letter from a woman in Asher to presumably her husband, where she states why she can't keep up, 
with fulfilling the requested orders of textiles. You should not get angry because I did not send you the textiles about which you wrote. As our little girl has grown up, I had to make a pair of heavy textiles for the wagon. Moreover, I made some for the staff of the household and for the children. This is why I did not manage to send you textiles. In reality, there was no way that a city with Asher's population could meet the market demand for textiles further west. Thus, Assyrian merchants also imported textiles from Babylonia, which were deemed to be of extremely high quality, and then they would resell them in Kanesh and other Anatolian cities. The father had the legal authority with regard to deciding his daughter's life path. She could either be married off or become what's known as a consecrated woman. This was actually a very respected position in old Assyrian society. It basically meant that the woman could dedicate her life to a deity, usually Ashur. She'd be forbidden from marrying, but was allowed to own property and partake in the family's commercial activities and even make important decisions. In some instances, she could even travel outside of Ashur and live by herself in a foreign land. Sometimes, the consecrated women of the family were even the first to receive their part of the inheritance in the event of their father's passing. Basically, she lived the life of what, in modern society, would be more or less an independent woman, with the exception, of course, that she was not free to have her own romantic relationships. It was the family's responsibility to take care of the elderly. Several letters have been found where sons have had to return back to Asher in order to take care of aging parents, or, in the case of their passing, bury them. Where they buried them was, well, unique. Usually, the deceased were buried in their own homes. The early Assyrians believed that after their death, their ancestors lived on as spirits and dwelled in an underworld with other family members who had also passed on before them. Those in the world of the living maintained relationships with the deceased by performing prayers and making ritual offerings. Due to such beliefs, family members were generally buried under the floor of the house. You can imagine that it was very difficult for descendants of the deceased to sell their family homes. King Sargon I's reign seems to have been the peak of the Asher-Anatolian trading phenomenon. After his reign, it's believed that armed conflicts between local Anatolian cities and kings made living in merchant colonies, as well as traveling along the old trade routes, extremely dangerous. This prompted most, if not all of the Assyrians, to return to Asher. While there was no doubt some trade with Anatolia that went on, after all, even during war there are profiteers, by the reign of Erisham II in the early 1800s BCE, it was probably a shadow of what it had been in centuries past. Not only this, but the political situation had changed in northern Mesopotamia as well. The collapse of the third dynasty of Ur and the Neo-Sumerian Empire, along with the influx of large numbers of Amorite migrants, had no doubt put enormous pressure on the settled areas of Mesopotamia. Eventually, new competing kingdoms, fiefdoms, and mini-states emerged, causing overall instability in the region. It was in such an environment that the powerful Amorite king known as Shamsi Adu, who in Akkadian is known as Shamsi Adad, vaulted to power. His rise would forever alter the fate of Assyria. That, though, will be discussed in the next episode of the Epic of Ancient Assyria.
Stay tuned. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about not just Assyrian history, but ancient and medieval history in general, then please check out my YouTube channel, History with Sai. I actually cover many more historical topics on that platform. Thanks again, and I'll catch you in the next episode.